resiliency kind of goes hand in hand with confidence. You teach them how to slip a punch because you don't want them to get hit by everything life has out there. You teach them how to take a punch and how to try to avoid it or how to duck it. If you can teach your kids all those things, they're not 100% prepared for life, but they're 100% prepared for how to deal with what life's going to throw at them psychologically and emotionally. Welcome to the Every Breath Counts podcast. I'm Ryan Sheckle, health enthusiast, amateur ultra runner, and award-winning business consultant. And each week, I interview the most accomplished people in the world, from professional and Olympic athletes to CEOs, best-selling authors, and even the occasional magician to demystify what it takes to achieve success at the highest level. Take what you can from these stories to optimize your mind, your body, and your career so you can make every breath count. Thank you for investing the time in the show and yourself. Now let's get started. You've got three choices in life. Give up, give in, or give it all you've got. Unknown. My guest today is Marty Strong. Marty's been a leader and business consultant for decades. First in uniform as a combat-decorated Navy SEAL, and then in commercial business. Marty's also the author of two fictional series, The Time Warrior Sagas and The Seal Strike series, before releasing his newest book, Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. I'll be honest, I nerd out anytime I could talk to a former SEAL or any special operator. I find their experience and mindset and work ethic to be so inspiring. And Marty didn't disappoint. We talked about the differences in people that do and don't make it through SEAL training, what it takes to finish any mission, the specific mindset it takes to lead others, and so much more. If you enjoy this episode and want to support the podcast, it's real simple. Head over to Apple Podcasts and give it a rating and write your favorite lesson from this episode as a review. And sharing with a friend is the best way to help others unlock their greatness. Now, without further ado, Marty Strong. And I want to start with, with this description of your first fiction book. And it takes place in 2143 in a world without challenges to the human spirit. But that world has turned utopian life into one not worth living. And I think this goes to that seal ethos of embracing adversity and overcoming. I mean, how do these books come from your experience as a Navy SEAL? So the time travel books called the Time Warrior Sagas started off as just one book. I was just, I read Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek. I decided that my bucket list that I was supposed to live in real time wasn't about uh, adventures to geographic locations. I've been in over 40 countries. That, that wasn't, that was a, that's kind of the angle he took. You know, price yeah. out your, price out your trip, do your trip, save up, then go to the next trip and live it, live it real time. I had things like want to learn how to play the guitar, learn to speak, speak Spanish fluently, write a novel, et cetera. So that was the goal, was one book. And I sat down and I thought, okay, the natural thing for me to do if it's a novel is to write about something I know, and I could write about SEAL stuff, right? I'd already been out of the SEALs for a little while by then. Technology had changed. The Not so much the nature of, of the missions, but the... Uh, even the formation sizes had changed. The structures had changed and evolved over the time I was out. So the more I started thinking about it, I said, you know, I'm going to have to become a student of what 
the seals are all about now if i want to write a novel about the seals and mm-hmm. and you know in the now instead of back when i was in so that frustrated me and then i went back to this this i think it was robert heinlein uh the science fiction writer he had a, an exercise where he would just take a blank piece of paper and he'd go to a yellow pages and flip through it and he'd pick uh vocations like plumber electrician whatever his finger would hit and he, on one side he'd, he'd put that put a bunch of them down there and then he'd do the same thing on the white pages and pick names and then he would take the names and use them because they were unique he didn't have to think them up and he would take these these vocations and he would put them on a planet or he'd put them on a on a starship or he'd put he just and I thought well what an interesting way to get your imagination kick started right and then I realized yeah because you don't have any rules in science fiction mm. you can make anything happen the way you want to you don't have to do any research that's what I thought but that's why I started with with science fiction and the um the little description that you you wrote I was thinking about that and I was thinking about the future and then I started getting what's the future going to look like and this 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 line popped into my head the number one cause of death in the year 2143 is suicide even though life expectancy was 160 years old and then I thought okay but why would that be and then I backed into the whole idea of the human spirit needs friction it needs challenge it needs mm. something that spurs it forward and gives it a desire to exist a desire to to live to get out of bed every day you know and when you hand everything to human beings and you're completely cocooned and protected that part of the psychology that's embedded you know from the very basic software operating system of a human being is being violated and that's the natural outcome they basically go into a deep depression and that's it regardless of what science is handing them as far as a lifespan but the where I made the mistake was I thought okay so if, how am I going to fix that and I thought okay what if I did time travel and they went back in time like time tourism to find to find what they were missing the challenge the risk life and death consequences of poor actions all that and then that kind of massaged me into leveraging the seal part that if I made them warriors and I made them go back to a time before you know guns when it was one on one combat etc that I could pull in all my old seal ethos the the brotherhood mindset the swim buddy mindset you know the two shield brothers as as uh as it's referred to in uh, the celtic times that shield brother was the person you would go through hell with because that was the person covering your 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 weak side while your right side had your sword in a shield wall opposing the enemy so that's when then i just started writing and eventually it turned into a couple of books and then i felt comfortable enough to segue over to the seal side of things and started running doing them alternately after that it's almost like improv in a way like i i try to think about improv comedy and it's you know it's this idea of just like a topic a name and it's just kind of rolling with whatever is given to you and and it sounds like that's kind of how you got started but in a way i i feel like your experience as a SEAL probably prepared you building a foundation of being able to improvise uh, and, and maybe in writing, but also other areas of, of your life. That's true. And right around the time I wrote this, I just finished three and a half years training in uh, Muay Thai or Thai boxing. 
I did as a, as a personal and psychological challenge to get back in at, uh, you know, a ripe old age. And, you know, when you're a CEO and you're, you're doing okay in life, you don't have a lot of challenges. You start, here, I'm writing about this stuff, right? About the challenge and the risk being kind of leached out of your life. In my case, that was happening because the better you do, the more the cocoon starts to get built around you. So I thought, I'm going I'm to challenge myself, put my ego at risk. And I tell you what, when you get out on a mat and some guy 25 years younger than you pops you in the nose and and then you move your hands to block and then you move your feet to get out of the way, you go, oh boy. And that's how it starts. And and it took me years to be able to get to a point where I actually could move and, and do the things I needed to do to survive on that mat. But I learned a lot of lessons about myself. It completely destroyed any ego I thought I had. <laughs> you know, I was very humble um, from day one. And so some of that's in the book, in, in the series on the time travel side. There's a lot of, I, I, they're, they're required to go through through martial training and, and both without weapons and also with the weapons of the period they're going to go back to. I had to research time travel, all the different theories, and I found a very esoteric one from back in, the, I think, 1920s, which um, worked out, and it's not something you see in movies all the time. So, um, yeah, it ended up being a lot of fun, but you're right. It's it's a little bit of a mosaic of what I know, what, who I've been, people I've known, and the methodology I described in, in coming up with it, that improv approach. It's really hard to be creative without plagiarizing with the massive amount of entertainment and creative bombardment we get every day. Oh, absolutely. I want to explore, I want to explore a little bit about your history as a SEAL because I think, you know, this recurring theme of just, of just seeking out some, some of these challenges is interesting. It's like seeking out that challenge of, of Muay Thai, seeking out the challenge of being an author, exploring other opportunities after having business success. I mean, it's going back to when you decided to become a Navy SEAL. Did you feel like you were doing that seeking out a challenge or did you feel called to it? Was there some greater purpose? No to all of that. Anybody that's <laughs> ever listened to any of my interviews knows that, uh, my uh, my arrival in Coronado, California for SEAL training was a mistake in orders. <clears throat> I was actually, uh, I graduated from the air traffic control radar school in Great Lakes, Illinois. I was supposed to go to a ship in the Mediterranean. I was handed orders to report to underwater demolition SEAL training for the next morning in Coronado, California. I was about 17 and a half and... When I told them that that's not where I'm supposed to go, they said, these are orders and your plane leaves in three hours, so you better get on the bus to the airport. Oh, my God. So I showed up there, and it turned out that I took a swim test during boot camp, which I was I was taking for a competitive swim event that was happening during boot camp. But there was a couple other elements to it, and they got my social security number, and it turned out, I didn't know it at the time, I didn't know it actually until eight years later when I came back as an instructor, and saw my records in the archives, but they uh, they took that social security number, and that that was a SEAL screening test. So that's how I ended up getting orders, and I showed up in California, and on a Friday, met about twenty guys getting ready for their training class that were fanatically dedicated, single-minded, disciplined, and preparing for it. All of which quit, by the way, 
before the first week was over. And I'm sitting there at 125 pounds, and I go in to talk to the people at the at what they call BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Seal Training, mm-hmm. and they talked me into staying. So it's crazy to think about though, because I've heard and I, I've done a lot of research on on the Navy SEALs, and I listen to a lot of the thought leaders in the area. One of the common themes is is that I I feel there is someone who has that that myopic purpose of like, I am going to be a SEAL no matter what. Nothing will will force me to ring this bell. This is the end goal. Like if you have that in mind, it seems to be at least a better idea of like, okay, I can overcome the hell that I'm going through because I, I have this bigger picture in mind versus, hey, I'm an athlete or, or whatever it may be. I think I can do this. Um, I mean, it's, but it sounds like conversely for you, you didn't necessarily at least have that going in. I mean, maybe you did after that conversation. When I went through, there weren't any movies. There weren't any games. There was nothing about SEALs. It was, it was very classified. So nobody in society really heard about them. It was mostly word of mouth in the fleet. Mm-hmm. And the uh, legacy people were, my uncle was a frogman. My dad was a frogman. And the classes were small, and there was only three classes a year. So, you know, there it just wasn't really well known. So that I, what I learned about SEAL Team, I learned in that first conversation. And then I learned from the guys in the barracks that were all ramping up. And they had all tried to get off of ships. They'd been preparing. Maybe they were on a, on a base in the Philippines for two years, running and doing push-ups, getting ready. I mean, these guys had put a lot of time and effort and energy. And their psychology was, they're going to make it. I didn't understand what the course was. I didn't understand what I was getting into. Eight years later, I showed up as a, um, the senior enlisted guy in charge of the first phase of three phases of that training. That, that's the phase where we have hell week and we get rid of everybody. That's mm-hmm. the selection phase. Watching it after having been a SEAL for eight years, and you don't even remember it when you're going through it, really. You know, it's nothing to reflect back on. You're kind of in a zombie mode, just trying to sleep, eat, recover, and dodge instructors. Um, but then I get back and I find out the whole thing is an orchestrated, choreographed, psychological set of scenarios to elicit a certain response. And that response is for you to decide whether you're going to listen to the voices in your head or you're going to be the voice in your head. And if you're going to listen to the voices in your head, you're going to be taken down a path where one way or the other, those voices will convince you that this isn't for you. If you're controlling the voice in your head, those are the people that are pretty much saying, I don't care what's happening to me externally. I don't care. We used to have a saying, you know, they can kill me, but they, they won't eat me or anything they make me do, I can do until I pass out. Then they wake me up. So at least I get to take a nap. You know, there's all these little kind of fatalistic comments, right? But really what it was is not even a conscious discussion or a mantra of drive and purpose. It was just more a commitment, kind of like in a prisoner of war camp. I'm just going to make it through whatever I have to do to make it through to the day that I'm not in here anymore. And that that's kind of the the general mindset of the ones that get through. They're not necessarily people that watched, you know, some SEAL movie 50 times and said, I am now going to be just like Marcus Luttrell. And a lot, a lot of times those guys are searching for a purpose and they're searching for meaning. And if they're looking at movies and stuff like that, they're, they're probably got a very, they probably have a very shallow level of true commitment. So anyway, it's, it's a it's an odd 
experience to go through. It's an odd experience to to choreograph and to um, oversee. I think I, I saw 21 Hell Weeks, counting my Hell Week. And it's it's very controlled and safe, and it's very um, scripted. That's the first thing that shocked me when I got there as an instructor. I got there for the 14-mile run. It's a beach run. And they had everything up on this board, and they were running it like it was the Bin Laden raid. They had everybody had mission teams read off free radio frequencies and you know call signs. And I'm like looking at it. I'm like, what's this all about? Oh, it's the 14 mile run. Well, when I did the 14 mile run, they just came out, told us we we're going to do a regular conditioning run of about four miles, and then you know started running down the beach. And then they stopped us and they turned around and said, "Just kidding, we're going to Mexico and back." And they weren't kidding. And we went to Mexico and back. <laughs> So that's how we got prepared for the 14 mile run as a student. But I, so that was it. It was, it was kind of like Disneyland, you know, all this stuff was set up ahead of time. Every bush probably had an instructor underneath it or something. It was all, all set piece experiences. And the ones that, that drive the voice in their head get through the end. It's, um, it's interesting to think about the fact that after writing your fiction books, you have written now two nonfiction books, Be Nimble and Be Visionary. Uh, Be Nimble just came out in January and Be Visionary is coming out next January. And when you're talking about this, I I was the the idea came to me of this concept of being visionary. And I know that you've taken a lot of your um, perspective and mindset from not only your career as a SEAL, but also your career in business. Um, however, this idea of being visionary is almost counterintuitive to the idea of getting through the SEAL training in a way, because you're saying, well, if you, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be thinking about the end, like being a SEAL. It's almost more like just doing what's in front of you, taking care of the task at hand. So is there a dichotomy between this long-term visionary mindset and what it takes on a day-to-day basis to get through something maybe difficult or transcending? Um, I think in my original experience, as I described it, there wasn't any out there, out there. There wasn't anything to show us. There was no recruiting in those days. There were no recruiting. There was no recruiting brochures. There were no recruiters that knew anything about the SEAL teams. When I came back in, um, after the eight years in the SEAL teams at SEAL Team 2, Ronald Reagan wanted to add about 350, basically double the size of the SEAL team. So right off the bat, we realized, well, that's not going to happen, you know, the, the traditional through osmosis kind of way that, that it happened since 1962. So we needed to have a program and the Navy needed to have recruiters educated. We needed to have posters. We needed to have a recruiting movie. We needed to have, and there was a lot of um, angst about that because we were a classified organization. But one of the things that we did do at the time was we realized that if you want people to come in, start off to join as a volunteer to get into the program, and if you want them to stay, you have to give them something to look forward to. Mm. So, we created that first recruiting film, and it starts with a SEAL um, fast rope assault on a bunker system that gets destroyed with demolitions. It starts with that. It's like it's like the opening of a you know of a uh, an action movie, and that's to hook them. And then it goes through some informational stuff about buds, but then then it goes into uh, mountain, Arctic, desert, jungle, 
and shows terrain stuff while the narrator is talking about all the different terrains and shows people jumping on airplanes. See, when when I went through and up till we did that film, you basically it looked like you were signing up to get beat up to carry a rubber boat on your head for the rest of your Navy career. There really wasn't anything visually or otherwise. You were supposed to just find it when you got to a SEAL team and then you couldn't tell anybody about what you found. So that's when we opened up the idea of having a horizontal, you know, perspective. And I think, I think that was good. The, the attrition hasn't changed still. It's still 75% of every class either quits or it gets hurt and 25% graduate. But we did that for that reason, mostly on the intake side, mostly on how do you pull kids out of college and high school to aspire, right? Mm. So I think there's, there's a, there's a role for visionary uh, insights and displays of what you can become, what, what the, the purpose of your, of your sacrifice if you, when you're going through something like that is. And in my case, my life has pretty much been nonlinear. I jumped through a lot of windows of opportunity. So that's the way my life's actually been. But I'm also a very, very visionary, strategic person. Uh, my greatest value as an officer at the end of my career was I was in a strategic think tank that the SEAL command um, put together. Think big thoughts. You know, what's the, what are the SEAL teams of the future look like? What are the boats that we're going to use look like? What are, how do we apply different kinds of platforms that we have now in a different way? What are the missions going to look like in the future? And so I carried that over. It was very helpful when I was managing money because it's all about looking at the markets, the cycles, individual industries, sectors, economies, or, in, or globally an economy. You know, what's going to happen? Then you work your way back from what you think might happen and extrapolate what decisions to make in the midterm, short term, and now. So all those things kind of blossomed in me after I showed up at the SEAL teams, but I've, I've always seen a lot of value in it. And it's all, it seems to be a, a difficult trait to find in the military and out of the military. Yeah, well, I think that you described three types of people, and I, I, I don't know if this was in Be Nimble uh, or Be Visionary, but you described three types of people. Uh, one, the wait-and-see people. Two, the world is ending people. And three, the seize-the-moment people. And it sounds like one of your biggest strengths was being in that seize-the-moment. Yeah, one of my favorite sayings, and I don't know who to attribute it to, it's lead, follow, or get out of the way. And maybe it's because I spent most of my, I came from a divorce uh, background, you know, as a kid, I was bouncing back and forth between my mom and dad. My mom had all kinds of psychological problems and drinking problems. And, and so I was very much in a survival mode from about 13 years old until I joined the Navy. And then I joined a profession where all you're doing is preparing and training for crazy scenarios, doing mission impossibles. And, you know, sometimes they're preparing you by setting up a difficult situation and then you go in and by a series of missteps, you make a difficult situation into a really bad situation. <laughs> so, so you're getting the maximum training benefit out of it because of your, your uh, failures or your missteps. So, you know, you get to the point where I'm out of uniform and I step out into the regular world. And most people were that wait and see kind of crowd that I'm not going to do anything proactive. I'm not going to invest in my people. I'm not going to invest in new systems. I'm not going to invest in myself as a leader or as just a person until there's a justification for it, and it's right there, plain in my face. Mm. And I thought, well, that's really odd, you know. That and and the more I looked around, the more I realized, even with business business owners and things, they tended to go in a reactive mode from 
threat to opportunity to threat to opportunity. And they kind of banged into them like they were going through an obstacle course rather than having thought through whether or not to go down the road where the obstacle course happened to be. Yeah, but do you have to go through a variety of situations and go through hardship to be proactive versus reactive? Because I, I know that in a lot of ways, business leaders or employees or anyone, you know, you build on experience. You build on the experiences you've had. So if you haven't experienced something that is you're projecting to happen in the future, it's hard to be proactive and make big decisions um, about about being proactive on it. So this is kind of like a value proposition issue. If you aren't thinking big thoughts, if you're not preparing yourself, if you're not running scenarios through your head or through your, your management team's heads on a regular basis, and you're making mistakes, those mistakes are probably not small tactical mistakes with small tactical financial consequences. They're, so they're usually larger scale. You missed the, you missed the whole market or you missed the chance to grab that corner where that, where that store or whatever you're going to run would have been the perfect place because you hemmed and hawed too long or whatever. Um, yeah, I think that, that it's trainable. I don't think you have to be a divorced kid. I don't think you have to be a Navy SEAL. I don't think companies put value on the skill set. And they don't realize that the skill set has to be um, essentially uh, generated and taught and reinforced from the second somebody starts to be an employee. It could be a technician, because if a technician's in charge of a, an expensive piece of machinery or technology, and they don't have that kind of mindset, well, they're bouncing from obstacle to obstacle, just like I described before. They're not thinking proactively. They're not going through what-ifs in their head. They're not mapping out all kinds of logic trees to try to anticipate things that may go wrong. They just wait till it goes wrong. Well, leaders do the same thing. You can have a, a, a wide-scale negative or adverse consequence of a technical person being tunnel-visioned and short-sighted. But man, if you've got management and leaders doing that on a regular basis, the scope and the span <laughs> of the damage that they're doing, and and the thing is, they all they all basically inoculate themselves from any kind of accountability because... Nobody's taught them to, to do it any differently, and they're looking around at their peers and the comparable examples. Don't, they, don't, they don't look like they're doing it any differently. So I guess this is just the way you lead. You lead, you know, kind of one step at a time until you bang into something, and then you hold an emergency meeting, and then you figure something out. It doesn't have to be that way, and that's why Be Visionary was an important book for me to write because it's about it doesn't have to be that way, and you can train people and. If you train senior management in this, it'll trickle down pretty fast because the benefits are are pretty profound. Yeah, one of the things that I've always believed is that um, not every great employee is a great leader or a great manager. And I think this underscores this importance is that, you know, the skills that it takes to perform at a high level, um, no matter what the role, let's call it, for me, it's easy to, to default to sales, right? So if you're great at selling something, you might not be great at leading a sales team. Because the skills that it takes to sell, um, you know, understanding what your customer wants, being able to negotiate, being able to close, none of that has to do with with creating better salespeople. It's not helping them learn to think. It's not helping them learn to acquire new skills. It's it's all individual. So how do we as leaders, and, and I use that term 
not in, not in the term of like employers or managers, but leaders within corporations, people who are forward thinking that, that others look up to. How should we start to instill this idea of being proactive? And how should we instill this idea of, of helping other people kind of think and reflect and understand the big picture? So I think the, the easiest, most direct and the quickest way to do it is to implement what I would call scenario-based training. It's kind of like case studies. It takes a little bit of effort to put together, but not that much because you can find and then uh, redact the names of the com companies and the locations of actual things that actually happened that are a matter of public record. And and, and do it in such a way that, you, you know, if you look at it, you go, oh, that's the Tylenol disaster or that's the Bhopal, India chemical disaster. It, you can find something that's more neutral and you can find it in different categories, and it's, you know, what's it's if most of the time it's failure to prepare and failure to anticipate. That's the same historical reference, by the way, of almost all military academies and war colleges. That in history, military leaders failed to pr either prepare, or if they were prepared, they failed to anticipate. Meaning they failed to anticipate the actions or reactions of the opposing force. Nowadays, they'd say. You can have the greatest plan in the wor world rehearsed perfectly, but you got to remember the other guy has has a vote in this. He's got a plan too, so it's not a one it's not a one sided um, competition. So you look at the different um, consequences. You can have a financial one. You could have a supply chain one. You could have a uh, a key talent flight one. Uh, you could have uh, an external comp competitor. In general, like market share related one, you could have one that's a product uh, disruption one. And you start running your team through these and you ask them to solve the problem. Now, they don't know how it turned out. They don't even know it's a real, a real story. Then you can tell them how it really turned out and then you can show them, you know, different ways to have handled it. And usually what happens is a lot of it was you could have anticipated it. It's kind of like the black swan thing, not as, as stark as a black swan, but, you know, the black swan problem is nobody anticipates it because nobody believes the data because they're tunnel visioned on the data, their frame of reference, mm -hmm. their point of view, and the, the whole leadership team was all picked because they agree with the leadership team's leader, and the leader was picked because the board's got a bunch of people on that know the industry. It is what it is what it is, and nobody, there's no dissenting views brought in, and so that whole hierarchy then is hit with something. You know, whether it's suddenly digital is going to wipe out analog, you know, or I you know what's another good one. Uh, you know, the whole Kodak story is overdone, but, you know, yeah. so at that. But it's overdone for a reason, right? Because it makes sense. <laughs> it, yeah. And it turned, and these are only the public ones that we're aware of. It, it probably happens, you know, all across the country, every single solitary year and overseas where that black swan hits your company and the postscript, maybe six months later, if your company goes under or you get fired, whatever, if you start thinking back, you start connecting the dots and you realize the fact pattern was there. You either ignored it if the information got to you at the senior levels, or you ran an organization that it was clear any contrary view, any contrary data would be rejected and looked on and frowned upon as, as a negative by the organization. Therefore, it never got to you. 
but well, in a way, it's like confirmation bias too. Because yes. when you're surrounded in a room, in a boardroom with a bunch of people, and you're contemplating uh, adversity that's coming in, maybe disruptive technology within your within your business, if you're all like-minded, if you're all thinking the same way and you all want to believe that the disruptive technology that you're being faced with is not going to hurt your revenue or bottom line, then you're only going to look at the data that supports that belief. Right. And I talk a lot, both in my, my keynote speeches and in consulting and in the book about intellectual humility. And I say that's the starting point you have to clear your mind of all the, the victories, the triumphs, and all the defeats because they're coloring your judgment. That you know, the you're either arrogant because you've been having a good a good run, and you keep applying whatever happened in the past forward, same formula, same football play, etc. Or you've been beaten down and you've been hammered and your sense of risk taking and confidence is is at a low point. And you basically intellectual humility is a concept that you just clear all that out. You open your mind. And if you do that, every time there's a challenge, or you do that as a way of kind of going to work as a leader every day, that's the first part. The second thing that that allows you to do is the intellectual curiosity. Intellectual curiosity is actually seeking out, not waiting for somebody to walk up and hand you some, you know, tangential, asymmetrical piece of information. It's actually seeking out the, the outlying opinions, the sometimes you bring in somebody completely outside of your industry and say, you know, what do you think of this problem? And all of a sudden they tell you something and you go, well, I never thought of that. So the more curious you are, the more data points you're collecting that aren't driven by the past and aren't confirming those biases, right? And then the third piece, the final piece, is that allows you the intellectual creativity. Now you can actually do solution design using the open-minded approach with all the data that you collected being curious. Now, just think about that. That's one person. But what if you had a whole team of eight or nine senior executives and they were all doing that? You would be like a data vacuum. You'd be in a constant state of exploration and experimentation and solution design. And maybe after all of that, what you're doing is working. Great. But that's how you confirm it. So if you're building a team and you're looking to have diverse opinion, uh, diverse experience so that you can all come together with humility and curiosity and then manifest creativity. How do you find a team that is diverse but can still work together? Because I feel like a lot of times in business right now, a difference of opinion um, it, it gets volatile quickly. I, and I don't know if it's a lack of humility, um, but or maybe too much ego or, or insecurity, but a lot of differing opinions create tension in the workplace. What I tell leaders is you have to think about this as a part of the culture of your company at every level, and then you have to hire for this, this capacity to engage intellectually more than, uh, than emotionally to be open and willing to listen to other ideas. I mean, it, when you're all done, there's somebody in charge and accountable, right? I'm, I'm not an advocate of crowdsourcing decisions. I'm an advocate of crowdsourcing insights. Mm -hmm. So 
that is not a difficult thing to do because they're not challenging your job or your, or your right or your positional authority to make the call. What you're doing is you're showing everybody how they can all contribute. And you have to hire people at every job level because it's part of the culture you try to either maintain if you have it already or grow. And it's even more important at the top because if you start at the bottom and everybody's, yeah, yeah we want to we give you input. It's like the old suggestion box. And it's gathering dust and you wonder why nobody does it or the open, the old open door policy. Nobody's ever come in. Well, sir, um, we have an open door policy. Yeah. And everybody's afraid if they take one step through the door, they're going to get an arrow in their back <laughs> from, from some yeah. se- some senior manager, you know, because you went in to talk to the boss. It's got to come from the top down. So when you're hiring in senior managers, senior leaders, it's got to be, I don't care if you're the, the chief financial guy. You have to have that kind of approach. If you had a CFO who had that kind of a mindset, then you have a partner, and I've had this once or twice, then you have a partner in creativity. How many people can say that they have a partnership as a CEO with a CFO that's a creative strategic partnership where they both sit there and throw ideas up against a board and one person is throwing out mechanical process ideas and the other guy's monetizing all the stupidity and you're, you're, you're coming up with something, you know, you got to have every single person in that team, every single person in the leadership structure. And if it's not, if you want to do this, you have to slowly start moving them out. Otherwise you're basically going to reflect the team you have. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, almost like utopian to to have that and then and then at the same way you have to have you know individuals working at the ground level of the organization like in the field that are that have the humility and have the have the desire to carry out these ideas as well right so i mean it's almost like you're creating this culture from the top down you create it from the top down to avoid the bottom up uh insights being squelched and crushed so you can either do it simultaneously or you, for me, I would say that the greatest impact would be with a smaller number of people clustered at the top. And it's, it's less about diversity of thinking. It's divergent thinking. It's people that are challenging the status quo in the industry, not just your company. There are people that are saying, you know, this is the wrong way to go. These people are all in, are investing and in, in piling on, on a technology, a delivery method that are, anything you can think of that is actually peaking. It's at the apex. This thing was the thing to do. This was the disruptive approach seven years ago. We are right at the tipping point of going into a completely different thing. Like um, I'll give you an example, like in gaming and almost anything to do with graphic illustrations, et cetera. A couple of years ago, everything went gig Mm. because the model changed. I talked to somebody who, who used to have a printing company who had three floors filled with people, full-time employed people. And they were as good or as bad or as, as fast or as accurate as those people. Cause that's what you get. You hire them, boom, done. They painfully started losing. Well, they started losing business and when they, they figured out, I was talking to the, there's a woman's owned company. She was a CEO. She said it took her about 24 months but finally, rather than just saying that the competitors weren't as good as them because they were doing it sloppy or something, she finally went and started studying the competitors. And the competitors had basically shifted to a gig structure. So they had access to the 100 best fill-in-the-blank 
creatives in the marketplace. She only had access to the four sitting on the third floor. <laughs> they were using their time and, and they were actually, you know, um, bidding the top, say, five selected creatives to get the work on schedule, on time to standard. The employees had to take vacations and they had fringe and all that. So they were able to undercut on these, these bids for these big printing projects. And so she had to make a decision. Nobody in her leadership team agreed with her. They were all invested in the old printing structure. And one by one, she had to let some of the senior leaders go. And, the, and when she was telling me the story, she'd gone from something like 70 employees down to about eight. But she said, then our, because we had a great brand reputation, our, our company took off leveraging that. And she goes, I probably employ, you know, indirectly another 800 people out there that are working for me on more projects than I could ever even think of bidding on back in the days when I was restricted. So that's a, somebody else had a divergent thought <clears throat> about delivering printing materials, printing products. She had the old school thought. She was open-minded enough to figure it out. And then she, you know, swallowed hard and made the decisions she had to make. And that whole industry is that way. Now there's nothing in creative production. I don't care if it's live streaming, movies, radio, everything's all gigged out. To all the all different elements are being run by the best um, practitioner, the best um, expert that you can find, and those are little little packets that are little production packets that are all stitched together. Yeah, that's a different way of doing business. I'm curious to understand because a lot of this, a lot of these skills can be acquired in the workplace, and a lot of them can be acquired from mentors or leaders um, setting you up to have experiences to learn these. But how can someone prepare and train themselves to be nimble, to have humility, to be curious? Like how can you at the individual level prepare for this if you're not in a situation that has this training, that has a mentor? That's a good question. Actually, that that question was asked, and I gave a speech last week to uh, a company in the in the pump industry, believe it or not, the maritime um, sector. And it's, it's kind of the way we train officers in the SEAL teams, and I'm sure they do the same thing in the other services. What do you do when the proverbial, you know, crap is hitting the fan? Everything's falling apart, you know, First, what, what am I supposed to look like? What am I supposed to be doing as a leader? So one thing is you're supposed to be poised and under control. You're supposed to be calm. doesn't mean you're, you're not emotional on the inside. But to be emotional on the outside could then turn around and convey that emotion to everybody else. Because what you want everybody else to do is to calm down, see that you're calm, and have them prepared mentally for your instructions. So the first thing I told all these guys was, you need to practice taking a deep breath when the challenge is, is when the gauntlet's thrown in front of you and use that as a practice session. You know, I use the, the metaphor of, of a prize fighter. You know, nobody gets into the ring and fights a, a professional fight in, in uh, Madison Square Garden without having practiced and, and learned a lot of lessons in the ring over a long period of time with lots of different fighters and being coached through all of their little problems. But 
leaders sometimes think that's what they're supposed to do is back to that reactive thing. They're supposed to wait around until a prize fighter steps in the room and hits them in the face and they're supposed to win. Not going to happen. You're not prepared for it. So you have to take that deep breath and you have to take, uh, make use and, and uh, leverage every single solitary time personally too. It's a great, it's a great practice um, to have it, you know, in your personal life. You know, I've got five kids, five grandkids, something happens. Hey, just got a call. Somebody wrecked the car, but you know, nobody's hurt. Take a deep breath. That's a leadership function. If you're a parent, what's going to be valuable, what's going to be worth telling somebody at the other end of the phone after that, after you've taken that deep breath. So, yeah. And I think in a lot of ways too, I mean, there's been books about about this as well, uh, the oxygen advantage. I think James Nestor wrote "Breathe" and and just the physiology of oxygen in, in, into your brain um, is, is super impactful. I know Wim Hof is is someone who's a huge advocate of breathing and cold water therapy, and uh, he does a, a practice with his students where he teaches them how to breathe uh, in a way that floods their body with, with oxygen. And he'll do like a push-up test and you'll say, okay, I want you to hold your breath and do as many push-ups as possible um, right now. And whether you can do five, 10, 20, 50 push-ups, you do your max amount of push-ups. And then he teaches you how to breathe. He floods your body with oxygen. And then he says, now go ahead and do push-ups again. And inevitably it's like 30, 40% more push-ups you're able to do through breathing. And it's amazing that, you know, I love the idea of not only the, the act of taking a breath, but the, the physiological change that you could have sometimes from healthy habits in a way. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you're right. I read, I read, um, breathe. That's a, that was a great book. The, the physiological and psychological benefits of taking that deep breath or taking that, that, that momentary pause it also allows you to register what happened and put it in its proper perspective. And, and then it gives you a moment with, with a clear mind to do what I was saying before, intellectual humility. Now, I really don't know what happened here. So before I accuse my daughter of causing the accident, before I you know, assume that, that the car is totaled, before I assume I'm, the insurance company is not going to cover it, before I assume any of this stuff, I need to clear my mind and I need to become curious. What happened? So like, and, and these are, I mean, my kids have all been in, most of my kids have all been car wrecks at one point in time. They're all grown now, but you know, that, that was, I learned this on the, on the dad side, but if I was calm on the phone, they weren't worried that I was upset with them and they calmed down. And I'd always ask, are you hurt? No. Is anybody else hurt? No. Then don't worry about the car. Yeah, I think that's one of the things leaders do really well is provide that perspective too. Because when you're when you're in the weeds, uh, you may be concerned about things that that just don't carry the weight that that need to be considered, right? Like, hey, I got in this accident. The that's going to be points on my license. It's mom and dad are going to be mad. And it's like, hey, now let's take a step back and let's let's think about what's important here. You know, you're okay. What did we learn from this experience? Um, I think that's powerful. Yeah. And I basically, I finished up last week with, if you were a bunch of SEAL officers sitting in here and something had just happened, I'd basically tell all of you to do the same thing. Everybody take a deep breath. The plans, the plans falling apart. 
We've got 30 minutes to come up with a new plan. What we're going to do is we're going to go in the other room. We're going to get on the whiteboard and we're going to fix this or we're going to figure this out. You with me? And then I'll go, yeah. And then I'll take them in the next room. I said, you can do the same thing in your company. You can do the same thing with your family. Can do. The thing is, you don't want to accelerate or amplify all the adverse and negative issues related to an emotional response to a threat. The, the, the flight component, right? What you want to do is you want to kind of calm them down and get them into the fight mode. You want them to start engaging their brain, engaging their technical skills. If they're managers, engaging their, their managerial skills and experience. You want that part of them to be, to be tuned in, not the flight part, not, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job. Or what's going to happen? Who's going to be blamed for this? All that kind of stuff. So yeah, back to your original question. You can do it with scenario-based training. You can do it with specific onboarding training. You can do it with ongoing management training. But as an individual, I would practice it all the time. I'm curious to, to get your perspective on what you think having kids and grandkids, what are the most important skills that young men and women right now should be acquiring um and i'll just leave it at that i think a parent should be focused kind of old school the way they used to focus on resiliency as a goal now resiliency kind of goes hand in hand with confidence which kind of implies self-confidence which also helps in, in inform and improve self-esteem, self-worth. Therefore, you because of all those things, you, you can be self-motivated. That's one thing. The other one is the old, um, the old punch thing. You, know, that you, you teach them how to, to slip a punch because you don't want them to get hit by everything life has out there. You teach them how to take a punch because that happens sometimes too. And you take them, and you teach them how to get up off the ground after they've taken a punch, and they've been knocked down. Those three, those three elements: how to how to try to avoid it, or how to duck it, or how to you know slip it, how to take the punch, and or psychologically, how to be resilient enough and say, okay, I, I, I'm still standing. This sucked, but I'm still standing. And the third one is you got knocked flat. Something bad enough happened. You know, your girlfriend, your boyfriend left you. You lost your job. You totaled your car that you spent two summers working to build up enough money to match your parents' amount. Now they're not going to buy another car because you, whatever it is, I make a complete flat on your back moment, right? If you can teach your kids all those things, by the time they, they graduate high school and they go out into life, they're not 100% prepared for life, but they're 100% prepared for how to deal with what life's going to throw at them psychologically and emotionally. And it'll get stronger as they grow because they, you know, they'll be tested, you know, much, much more than probably happened in their teens. I think that's, I think that's such a powerful uh, message. And I think it's, at this point, I think it's a, a perfect place to kind of tie all this together. And Marty, this has been a really fun conversation. I think that you've proven that, that the experience you've had is, has really, it's, it's 
built a foundation in your mind that is translatable to to business to life um and i i love the insight that you've been able to share and and i'm looking forward to reading some of your fiction books because it's super intriguing to think about this time travel um but i have three questions that that i ask at the end of every podcast um before we get into those if anyone's interested in you know speaking to you getting your books what's the best place for them to reach out the best place is uh, my website, MartyStrongBeNimble.com. All my books are available on Amazon. The, all the fiction books, the proceeds go to the SEAL Veterans Foundation. I've been don donating um, all the royalties from the very beginning for those. And then the, the uh, nonfiction, which I write under Marty Strong, are available both on my site and at Amazon. Awesome. And all those links will be in the show notes. So final three questions of the podcast. Uh, you're an author. You've written now, what, 11 books? Mm -hmm. um, what is the most impactful book you've ever read? The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers by Paul Kennedy. It was about the rise and fall of Spain, France, and England, and all the inter intertwined military, social, and economic reasons for those happening. I've read that. Was there like a, a, a common thread that was weaved through? Yes. Um, imperial overreach was a big one and uh, hubris and kind of like not being, not being, uh, if you're not humble, you don't ever think that your rise to the top is ever going to stop. So they all overspent, they all overextended. And uh, yeah, it's amazing, especially like Spain and how much wealth they took out of the out of the uh, new world and what happened to that wealth and how they ended up being a debtor nation to everybody else in Europe. But it's, it's a, it's a great book about human nature in general, about the human nature aspects of leaders in charge of countries. And I think it's applicable to, to large corporations and ultimately, you know, what those three empires went through is what the Soviet union went through. And there's, there's a lot of, a lot of kind of, human nature repeating itself through these huge structures, but it's still human nature driving it. That sounds awesome. I'm actually going to, as soon as we're done here, I'm, I'm going to look for it on audible first. And if I can't <laughs> it, find it on audible, it's an older, <laughs> it's an older order. book, but it's, it's around. I'm sure someone read it at some point. Um, okay. Second question. If you could have a drink with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? What would you drink and why? You know, usually I have a different answer, but right now I think I would really like to sit down with um, Einstein. Now, the reason I say that is, you know, I was talking about intellectual curiosity. So I spend a lot of time either reading or watching documentaries and things about things completely outside of my frame of reference and experience because I'm trying to see things differently. So uh, I was really surprised at how much Einstein wrote his, how much, how funny he was. He's kind of like a, um, oh, uh, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens kind of a guy. I mean, it really is. And, yeah, really? and, uh, I think he'd be a lot of fun to have a beer with and, and not, and he says a lot of stuff about physics, obviously, but a lot of his quotes are about human nature and, and people in society and, and they're really insightful. Yeah. You wonder if um, it's, it's kind of like you said, who you're surrounding yourself with. 
provides perspective. And I know that I believe he was really good friends with Salvador Dali. Oh, yeah. And just having someone so, I don't know, unique uh, to, to be friends with might might have even contributed right to some of that curiosity and, and understanding of psychology. Who knows? Um, and the last question, the Every Breath Counts podcast, the Every Breath Counts mindset, it has a twofold meaning. On one hand, you need to use every single breath in your life to leverage, to accomplish the greatness that you are capable of accomplishing. And on the other hand, you need to use every breath in your life to be grateful for the opportunities that you have and for everything that you have accomplished. So, Marty, how do you make every breath count in your life? Well, I try to be... I try to be humble. I try to see where my place is in the universe and whether I'm contributing. And, and so most, most of my, my level of effort these days is, is how do I contribute to the, to the cause? And it could be, I mean, I'm on a board of directors of a robotics group that, that puts together competitions for kids all across the country called best robotics. Um, I mentioned before I boys and girls club and, uh, I really like doing that. I think that, that keeps me grounded. And I was listening to a book the other day by Alan Weiss, who's a, a consultant, um, exemplar consultant. And he said something that kind of tied it all up for me. He said, to remember, you can always make another dollar, but you can't make another minute. So in, in the pursuit of success as defined by you know, a monetary figure, if your KPIs are all dollars and cents, Think about that, because to me, that, that that really that stuck home. Yeah. Well, Marty, this has been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for doing your best to contribute to the future, to the future of leadership, to the future of business, to the future generation of of people to come. And um, I love hearing from people like you. And I really enjoy the perspective that I receive uh, from someone who's actually lived a life um, and had the experiences to contribute to the greater good. So thank you for that. Guys, go out. Marty Strong. Find him at the website. Links are in the show notes. Take a look at the books. If you need a speaker, reach out to him. Have humility. Be curious. Get creative. And make Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I can't articulate how grateful I am for you. If this episode was inspiring, motivating, or educational, it would mean the world to me if you hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen and left a positive five-star review. And if you want to learn about new episodes as they come out, check out my Instagram at everybreathcountspodcast and sign up for my newsletter at everybreathcountspodcast.com. Have a great day and make every breath count.